Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex to be considered before becoming a client of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Securities are offered through HBEC Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Annex Wealth Management and HBEC are unaffiliated. This program may contain forward-looking statements which may not come true. Please consult with an advisor about your specific situation. Taking the mystery out of investing with answers to your financial questions. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald from Annex Wealth Management on WTMJ. It is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday the 8th. I know we were on last weekend, but boy, you blink and it's September already, right, Dave? It is September and after Labor Day, and there's a lot to think about once we start to get into September, which has historically not been a good month. But uh, let's start right away with a jobs report that we saw Friday morning. Yeah, the jobs report, again, was solid. It's the 95th straight month where U.S. employers have added to payrolls. Uh, the number came in at 201,000 mark versus expectations of 192. And and the unemployment rate uh, is at 3.9%. Well, the other number that we usually look for, Derek, is also wage inflation. How were wages the last month? They were, again, muted. Um, we've talked often about the Federal Reserve looking at about a 4% annualized increase as a, as a point at which they get very aggressive in terms of tightening. Uh, we're still below 3%, so wages continue to to go up. They're stronger than they were a year ago, uh, mirroring consumer confidence and other economic data we've we've seen. In fact, you know, one of the things that came out this week was some manufacturing data which caused the Philly, I mean, excuse me, the Atlanta Fed to revise their forecast for Q3 GDP up to 4.5%. So that's a lot of numbers to start the show. And, and was just thinking about as investors and listeners to Money Talk, how do we then internalize that? How do we take that information? A good jobs number, obviously people are working, Wage inflation in the in the event that people have more money to spend more money drives GDP and drives profitability of the companies that we invest in. All this summer, we've seen a tug of war between interest rate and trade fears and a very strong economy and, and very strong corporate profits. And the, the thing I keep pointing out to people is that at the beginning of the year, we're looking for earnings in the S&P of a certain level. Well, those earnings are well above what people thought at the beginning of the year. So even though stocks, the S&P is up about 8% for the year, it's actually cheaper on an earnings base. And that is because when the earnings go up and the price is even, the P.E. ratio is down to 16.5, which is about a historical norm compared to where we were at the beginning of the year. Yeah, it's a fairly fairly neutral level historically. And, and what we've said all, all summer long, really, was as we approach the midterm elections, we do expect volatility to pick up. We're seeing the VIX now up to 15, which is the highest level it's been at in, in a couple of months. But once those election uncertainties are resolved, typically the stock market does very well going into the end of the year. Now, we talk about September being a difficult month, and we did a little research on that. And what we found is that September is, if you look at all of the years, but when September starts... On a positive note, we usually have a neutral September and a strong rest of the year, and that's where we are today compared to if September starts on a negative, then it finishes on a negative. Right, and, and you know, October is the month that gets the most publicity because that's when the major stock market crashes have occurred. But September, as you mentioned, has historically been the weakest, and that's true of midterm election years as well. You know, so, you know, I don't, we, you know, we don't guide our investment decisions at Annex based on seasonality, but we certainly do, you know, try to opportunistically take advantage 
advantage of volatility. And given the uncertainty about the midterms, given the uncertainty on trade, in fact, the president uh, announced another $267 billion in tariffs uh, that may be imposed against China. I mean, there, are, there will be opportunities and pockets of weakness that hopefully we'll be able to capitalize on. So certainly a lot of things going on. You talk about employment. You talked about tariffs in there. Certainly things for investors to digest, but when you look at it on month by month, you, you mentioned seasonality. We don't move our portfolios binary, right? We're, we're not either in or out. What we're trying to be is tactical, and you use the word opt opportunistic. And I think when you look at our investment committee and our approach to investing, we're digesting all of this information and then taking it to the investment committee and making tactical moves within our portfolios. That's correct. I mean, so basically, you know, I'm always thinking about what are the, the risks that we face, and there are basically three risks that the market will have to digest. You know, when is the next recession likely to occur? What will trade tensions do and what will that impact? How will that impact corporate decision making? And are earnings expectations too high? I mean, right now we're looking for Q3 and Q4 S&P earnings growth of over 20%, which would be four quarters in a row of plus 20% growth. Those are very strong numbers. So we're always trying to look around the corner and try to decide where Wall Street and the re and reality are different and, and hopefully take advantage of that. And I'll take that back to you, Dave, because you brought up the point of PEs of about 16.5%. When people are talking about the market being overbought or overvalued, that's a place to look, and that's a reasonable number right now. It really is, and the market has continued to go up on a wall of worry. And we can talk about you know, some of the clouds that are forming in front of us and where that puts us in 2019 and really the end of this quarter. So there's a lot to talk about, Derek, and uh, if you could stick around for one more segment, we'll have to go through some of these questions. Thank you. Uh, Dave Spano, Annex Wealth Management. Also, Derek Felsky, our Chief Investment Officer, and Mark Oswald. One thing to get on your uh, radar, and it's coming up pretty quick. It's Retirement Roadmap, and it happens Tuesday at our Mequon office, uh, Mequon Road, right off of 43. Retirement Roadmap is really one of our most popular seminars, and it's really it's a discussion. It's about 90 minutes long. We're not going to sell you anything. We're just going to kind of lay things out, and it's a discussion. It's really good. You can go to AnnexWealth.com and go to the Events tab and sign up for that. That comes up pretty quick, and uh, space is limited for this. But it starts at 6, goes till about 7.30. Sometimes they go longer because we're just talking. Retirement Roadmap. Again, AnnexWealth.com. Go to the Events tab. Money tips that don't cost a thing. This is Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management for Saturday the 8th. This is a week that at least two of the tech companies came to Washington, D.C. It was uh, Twitter and it was Facebook. It was not Google. No, Google chose not to appear. Uh, Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook and Jack Dorsey of Twitter uh, both appeared appeared before the Senate Intelligence Committee because the senators are concerned about uh, foreign manipulation of our election. So they were there to basically discuss things that they've done to prevent that. They talked about eliminating sites, increased verification of, of sites that are set up, particularly overseas. And, and basically, it just highlights the, the issues surrounding what we call the FANG stocks. Right, exactly. Mark, the FANG stocks are still getting a lot of attention. Of course, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Now, if you add Microsoft into that group as well, that accounts for 50% of the gain so far. And Derek and Mark, you know, they start to talk about, is this a narrow market if that begins to happen? Well, talk about that, guys, because I think defining that for the listener is important. Because when you look at that much of the gain in a broad index like the S&P 500, 500 stock companies, and five or six of them account for half of that, then you have to look and say, well, are the other 
495 stocks, are they participating in the gains at the same rate? Do you look at those individual names or do you look at the broad index as being the place to invest? Well, I mean, the, up to this point, and I think one of the reasons that active managers have had such a difficult time keeping up with the S&P 500 is despite the performance of those stocks, most managers are actually underweight those stocks relative to the index. So to the degree that they were able to find names that actually outperformed, names like Apple and Amazon, uh, they've done well, but the vast majority have not so far this year. We had one of our analysts uh, do an interesting study, and they compared it, uh, if you're an NBA fan, to the Golden State Warriors, where Clay Thompson, uh, Stephen Curry, and Kevin Durant, the three of them, together had 50% of the scoring of the Warriors, and they did just fine because the other 50% came from somewhere else. And he tried to make that argument, and I thought it was interesting. But there still is distribution across all of the other sectors, and that's what a diversified portfolio does. In you know what we have stayed away from have been the laggards, even though tech has done well. Staples, materials, and utes, utilities, those are sectors that we have really underweighted. We have. I mean, the other area of the market that we have significant exposure to are small caps, and, and small caps are nice because you don't have the trade concerns. Uh, they leverage the domestic economy more than the international economy. And as a result, the Russell 2000 has actually outperformed the S&P despite the strong performance from those FANG names. You know, Derek, in the, in the earlier segment, we talked a little bit about the factors that may impact the markets going forward. And one of the things you talked about was the prospects of a recession. And that leads to the conversation, of course, that we've been hearing about an inverted yield curve. Let's talk about that a little bit and just basically what people should be looking for there in terms of long rates versus short rates and how that impacts portfolios in the long term. See, what what counts with the yield curve is not is not whether it's, it's flattening, but whether it's actually negative. And right now, the yield curve is still modestly, positively sloped. And the reason that's important is in the past few recessions, we've seen the yield curve invert roughly six to nine months before the onset of a recession. Let me jump jump in right there. Just for those who don't have your brain box, ex- explain what a yield curve is. What you're doing is you're comparing the yield on Treasury securities for, over different time horizons. So typically what people will look at is, say, like the two-year note versus a 10-year note. And right now, the, the yield on the 10-year note is north of the two-year note, which is what you'd expect because people would like a, a desire a greater return over time to compensate them for holding Treasury securities uh, to incorporate their inflationary expectations and the like. So basically what happens is as the Federal Reserve begins to tighten and the Fed controls the short end of the yield curve, as they raise short-term rates, the bond market will decide what long-term rates ought to be based on what they see the Fed doing, what they see inflation doing, what their expectations for future growth are, how the dollar is doing, and all the rest. So basically, during a tightening cycle, the yield curve tends to flatten because short rates go up more than long rates. Well, when you look at it, Derek, from an investor standpoint, again, you're looking at the twos and the tens and the thirties, and you expect the twos to be less than the tens and the tens to be less than the thirties. And in a normal environment, that happens. When people start to fear that something's going to happen in the intermediate term, they stay away from the longer dated bonds. And by doing that, you get that rate to go down because there's less demand for those bonds and those interest rates go down. Uh, Mark Oswald, we're going to take a break real quick at 1022 back in a bit. We've got to cover a little bit, I'm guessing, about Elon Musk and uh, Tesla. That was a big thing in the news. Listen, when you get a chance today, head to AnnexWealth.com. First thing you'll see is know the difference. You'll also see get a plan. If you click that, you will be able to get that free portfolio analysis 
It's not intrusive. Uh, we want to learn more about you, and uh, we can give you a better second opinion. If you need some fresh eyes on your portfolio, that is the thing to do. You'll also see Team Technology and Trust, and that's what we do on this show is introduce a lot of members of the team to you. We talk a little bit about the technology, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to get your trust because uh, that is something that is earned when you have an experience with Annex Wealth Management. That will happen again, AnnexWealth.com. Spreading the wealth every Saturday. Here's more Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Money Talk Annex Wealth Management. I just want to point out the WTMJ studios do not resemble in any way the studios of Joe Rogan's podcast. And that we should talk about a little bit because it was a huge story yesterday with Elon Musk, CEO of, uh, of Tesla, with Joe Rogan lighting up what appeared to be an enormous blunt and drinking whiskey, hauling out a samurai sword, and the stock went down immediately, first thing Friday. Well, this, the studio, you mean right now, it doesn't look like that on Saturday morning. However, <laughs> it's during the week, we're not so sure about that. So, Derek, you saw that happen, and it certainly makes Elon Musk, uh, puts him in the spotlight again, running a major corporation. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, my thoughts are, you know, when you when you evaluate a company, obviously you look at the management, and he is clearly a visionary doing all sorts of things, not just with cars, but with rockets and the like. Um, but, you know, when we focus on corporate fundamentals, when we, when we ran Tesla through our screener and looked at the quantitative uh, factors that would support either an investment in it or a, or a no in it, uh, we really couldn't find much to validate owning that Tesla. In fact, it was on our failure model, which is essentially an appreciation that the company's fundamentals really aren't worth the stock price that it was trading at. And that was when the stock was north of $300, $350. I and think then, it's, sure. And then even without this podcast, what's it been down about 30%? The last yeah, I think it's, it was down It was down 15% yesterday following his uh, interview. Uh, so, you know, it's not a name that we hold in our client portfolios. It's been highly speculative. The valuation is north of General Motors, even though they are far from making any money. And it's just not the kind of name that we typically use in client portfolios here at Annex. I saw one piece that said, well, maybe he knows that they're having a very good quarter and it just doesn't matter. Yeah. No, I, I don't think so. You know, I, I think the bigger concern really is companies that have infrastructure built already, General Motors, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, if they come into that space, what is that going to do to a battery operating well, company? Well, and I just saw a picture of the new Mercedes battery-powered car, and it looked looked pretty slick. And I've got to believe they've got manufacturing competency that Tesla does not as And yet. distribution. Remember, there's dealerships everywhere that are in place, physically set up with people to sell them and so on and so forth, service areas. So, you know, th their pressure on Tesla could exist. So that's one end of the spectrum, guys. I mean, Tesla and General Motors, big-time companies. The other end of the spectrum is emerging markets sometimes, smaller companies that don't have that shelf space of a Tesla or a General Motors. What's been going on with emerging markets? I saw they had another down week this week. No, emerging markets have, have suffered uh, greatly this year. Partly it's because of the strength of the dollar. Partly it's because of the, of the fact that our Federal Reserve is now in a more of a tightening mode than they had been previously. And that some emerging market countries during this period of extraordinary low rates actually went hog wild in the debt markets and bought U.S. denominated debt. So to the degree that they, they A, added debt and B, added dollar denominated debt, they're suffering because 
because their payments are now going through the roof because the dollar has advanced so much against currencies like, uh, you know, versus the Venezuelan currency, for example, the Argentinian currency and the like. So it's clearly an area that, that people are a little concerned about. There are fears of contagion in emerging markets. So the real question is, at what point will that affect the United States economy? Currently, so far, we have a Kevlar economy. The U.S. economy is doing great. Unemployment's great. Earnings are great. But at some point, to the degree that there's an accident in emerging markets, that could leave the U.S. economy somewhat vulnerable as well. But right now, well, you're seeing capital flows come into the U.S. market like we haven't seen, and we've seen the dollar begin to stabilize. So those are both good signs for our economy. On top of what you just said, we expect 20% growth in the Q3 and Q4, so it's we're going to have a solid end of the year. I don't know how 2019 looks. As you said, that this party may end at some point. Well, people are concerned. You know, will will the sugar high from tax cuts be offset in 2019 as we look at tougher compares on an earnings basis? But as you mentioned earlier, the valuation of the S&P is somewhat reasonable given where interest rates currently are. But it's clearly an environment where I would believe stock pickers ought to start to do better relative, relative to major index players because there are pockets of strength and pockets of weakness. And as a tactical investor, we're looking for pockets of strength. I think that's a really important point when we talk about emerging markets broadly about Argentina or Venezuela or Turkey and and the currency issues there. You can look at it and say, does active management make sense in those types of investments? Because you can be tactical, right? You don't have to take all the companies of, let's say, South America. You can look at it and be tactical and say what economies are doing well there and inside of that, what companies within that country are doing well. So some of the active management we have, our clients have exposure to emerging markets, right, Derek? They do, and, and frankly, they're losing less. They're not making money right now because the, the outflows in emerging markets have been fairly substantial, but the valuations are very attractive. So you've kind of got this, you know, the negative uh, backdrop, the negative fundamentals, but then you've got the superior growth rate of many emerging market companies. For example, one of our managers owns a lot of emerging market brewers, Mark, which ought to, you know, perk your ears up. But basically, people in the emerging markets drink nowhere near as much beer as you or anyone else in America does. And and her belief is that over time, that, that gap will close. Yeah, I'm still waiting for that call from Miller Brewing and see if uh, someone's going to give me some credit for some of the dollars I've spent with their fine products over the years. From simple investments to stock advice, back to Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Joining me, Deanne Phillips, our Director of Client Learning and Development at Annex Wealth Management. Hey, I missed you uh, recently. You were out for a day. You were doing a financial planning day. Tell me a little bit about that. I was. So the Children's Community Health Fund, along with Marquette University and the Financial Planning Association of Wisconsin, held a joint event called Milwaukee Financial Planning Day. This was a chance for anybody to walk in and ask a question. Lots of people. Did any themes emerge? Do you kind of start to hear the same things and, and anything you can tell us about? A lot of people have this common misconception about dividing student loan debt, that all debt that is obtained before a marriage actually becomes shared debt once you're married, and that's not always the case. Legally, any student loan debt that you incur before you get married is considered separate property and remains so after the divorce unless there's a prenup stating otherwise or unless you come to an agreement upon termination of the marriage. So, for example, if you racked up a couple hundred thousand going to law school before we got married, Danny, then congratulations, that debt is yours forever. Yeah, but we're young and in love, so we're not even thinking about that, Well, see, that's a problem because it is. So we're young and, and in love, and let's say we get married and 
that debt happens during the marriage or your career picks up during the marriage and then the marriage ends up dissolving later, that does become tricky because when degrees are obtained during a marriage, they can be looked at as a way of enhancing the earning power of that spouse. What else was uh, starting to pop up? What were people asking questions about? There's estate planning confusion, and not to stay on the theme of divorce, but we did have several people ask about prenups. They must have known you were there. <laughs> they Maybe. must have sought you out. Okay. Estate planning as well, there's confusion there. There is. And, you know, whether it's whether you're not married or your first marriage or your 18th marriage, you know, everyone needs estate planning. I- again, that doesn't come back to how much money you do or don't have. It's really a function of getting your ducks in a row. Because remember, part of when we talk about estate planning. We think, oh, estate means I have a lot of money. But it also includes things like your durable financial power of attorney. So if I don't have that, if I become incapacitated, who pays my bills for me during that time? It also includes a health care power of attorney and a HIPAA agreement. So again, Danny, let's go back to you. If you and I are married sure. in the state of Wisconsin, you're my husband. So if something happened to me, I got into a car accident, they would talk to you about my health because you're my spouse. But If you were my child and over the age of 18 and that happened, they wouldn't necessarily have to release your medical records to me. So people forget that they're sending off in the fall a kid away to college. You know, it's time for school to start. They better have a HIPAA or a health care power of attorney agreement, put their parents on or put somebody on who can have access to those medical records. I'm pretty sure that happened to somebody that works at Annex Wealth Management. Anything else that uh, popped up? A, a lot of tax questions. You know, it is a new year with a new tax law, and so it's confusing to people. Um, you know, we've done things a certain way now for quite a long period of time, and the idea of doubling up deductions, especially around a time when people might be starting Social Security, security for the first time and, or stopping work and their income changes. It really, so our own Mandy Nowashinsky, our CPA was there and she was a hot item that everybody wanted to sit with the CPA who was a CFP um, just to get kind of a feel on the new tax code. So, you know, we also did workshops throughout the day and that really helped also for general education. Um, there were a couple of people that had specific questions to me about second marriages and estate planning around second marriages. You know, one of the things we don't think about when we go into a second marriage, you know, common sense might tell us that, hey, we're going to do better the second time around because we made mistakes the first time and we learned from it. But unfortunately, statistics don't show that. And second marriages fail at a stronger rate than first marriages for a lot of reasons. One can be there's a tug of war between spouses sometimes, especially if there are minor children, because think of it, the new spouse and the kids are vying for attention during that. And it can create resentment, right? There also can be war of the ex-spouse, too, especially if that ex-spouse gets married. Uh, then all of a sudden, it's not just the ex-spouse, but it's the ex-spouse and their new spouse who is maybe trying to redo the court order, or feeling that there's not enough. And meanwhile, if I'm paying support to somebody, I get remarried. Well, my new spouse is going to think, why the heck's the old spouse getting all that money, too? So a lot of times, those mixed feelings and just really the war of the ex-spouses becomes a tug of war that can be another reason that contributes to divorce. But the main one that we see is this quest for perfection. I don't know if you've ever seen that, Danny, but it's kind of like, okay, 
My first marriage didn't work, but that perfect person has got to be out there for me. And I think it's, how long have you been married now, Danny? 30 plus years. Okay. And not to me, I will say for our listeners out there, I use that as an example, but yeah, so I've been married over 20 years and you know, 30 plus years, there's a formula for that. Congratulations on that, by the way. But the thing is you learn about, um, your spouse, that it is about concessions. It's not about looking for perfection. And just because, and unfortunately we do see this and this is a reason why people don't get a prenup. They let their feelings get in the way. Marriage is a financial contract and you have to think that way. So we have people that come in periodically and they're getting married for the second, third, even fourth time without a prenup. Deanne Phillips, Director of Client Learning and Development, Financial Planning Day recently at Marquette University. Who should we thank for that? Oh, my gosh. So the Financial Planning Association of Wisconsin in conjunction with Children's Community Health Fund, which provides a lot of services to our community as well and does a lot of pro bono work out in the community. So I have a feeling that FPA, Financial Planning Association, and Children's will be joining forces again in the near future. For people that missed it, we may have another one coming up. Very nice. 1041 at WTMJ. We're going to take a break on Money Talk. Know the difference. It is Team Technology Trust. Website, AnnexWealth.com. Watch your investments grow with Money Talk with Dave Spano and Mark Oswald on WTMJ. Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management. I'm Danny Clayton. Dave Spano is here and joining us, a financial planning specialist from Annex Wealth Management. Eric Strom, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Oh, all right. We dragged you in for Ask Annex, which is a popular feature on our website. Go to AnnexWealth.com and look for Ask Annex. Dave, here's the question. What are your thoughts about moving after retirement? We love Wisconsin, but skipping winter might not be a terrible thing. From a planning standpoint, what do we need to consider? That's a, that's a tough one. But first off, congratulations. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. You know, and one of the things that when, when we go through, in particular, the financial d- the planning department uh, with Eric and his group, is that there's the economic conversation and there's an emotional conversation. The e- economic part is the stuff we work on. Have you saved enough? What are the tax bracket? What is the distribution going to look like? But this is an emotional answer as well, Eric. And, you know, when you talk about moving and you start moving away from your community, there is a lot of things that people have to consider. You know, are you moving into an area that has warmer weather or are you moving towards an area that has, for example, your grandkids? And what is that going to look like? Absolutely. And actually, this reminds me of a situation that happened recently. Met with a client and they said, well, we're thinking now that we're retiring, we're thinking, you know, we've lived in Wisconsin our whole lives. We're thinking of either living in Texas, living in Florida or living in Wisconsin, which would be best from a financial point of view. And we're thrilled to try to help answer that question because it's fun to take a family and think about them in isolation and say, okay, so forget all of these lifestyle factors. What's the best from a financial planning, a tax point of view? But, you know, what dominated the conversation was, I don't think you should make this decision based on financial considerations, because as much as we like to geek out about, well, if you live in a community property state and you die, then there'll be a double step up in basis. We love those details and we'll help our clients with those details. And you know those forward and backwards. Absolutely. But... I would say that's maybe 10% of your consideration. I think that you really have to think about what's the weather like? Can I visit my family, my friends, all of these, all of these other considerations? So these social aspects, Eric, there is a lot that goes into that. And, you know, we've seen this, Danny. We've seen where people want to move towards their grandchildren because they're involved in their lives, not only from events. They can go see them in the plays or their sports games and so on and so forth, but also holidays. So now they're already there to, for the holidays as well. So we're seeing that the emotional 
emotional part is as big as a decision, even in fact, even more of a decision than the economic part. It sure is. But what if they live in San Francisco where the cost of living is just crazy compared to where we what we see in the Midwest? And that is all part of that, right? So, for example, if they live somewhere, can they get close to an airport? Yep. Yeah. Or, you know, what's what's it like to fly in and fly out? And here's another big aspect of that is, you know, we are social creatures. And so if you're going to now get up and move away from certain places, what does that look like, Eric? And now you say, you know, how is how do I fit into a particular community? What is, you know, what are my aspects that I have to think of in, with that regard? Absolutely. And one thing I'll say is this topic really comes up time and time again. And we've had countless conversations with our clients about about moving. And one tip that I like to always give is maybe do a trial run. Yeah. Don't go down and buy a property. Maybe rent three months, six months, give it a try, learn the neighborhoods. Where do you, you know, can you imagine yourself living here either part of the year or permanently? I, I would say don't rush into buying a property because I've seen it happen a few times off the top of my head. I can remember I've seen people buy properties before they really knew what they were getting into. That's great advice, Danny. When my folks retired, they established residency in Texas because of it. Uh, there was a tax advantage mm -hmm. to that. It, does that play into it? It can. And, and again, I think the theme of what we're saying here today is that the financial considerations are something that you really should work with an expert to, to, you know, to really learn those consequences. Um, but again, that should only be a small part of the decision at the end of the day. Exactly right. So, you know, you go to those communities, and we've told people to do that, and they have, and they've come back and thanked us. So they went there, and they couldn't find a community that they liked. They didn't like the restaurants. They didn't like, you know, here's, here's another thing as Wisconsin people. They went to an area, and there were many Packer fans around, you know, and they, they certainly weren't going to change, you know, to be a Cowboy fan. That is for sure. So that all really does go into consideration. And one of the other big decisions that we saw as well, Eric, is they, they these were people of faith. And so they said now they're going to move away from their community and their church, and now they have to go and relocate to a new church as well. And that was part of their decision. And so we're seeing a lot of these things, Danny, come into play. And as Eric is saying, it isn't just about the math. And that's, that's huge. I'll say that I'm a transplant here to Wisconsin. So I actually grew up in Massachusetts. My wife is from Milwaukee. After starting our family, we ended up back here. And I got to say, I love it here in Wisconsin. But you know, the church I grew up going to, I, I definitely still have a real fond, you know, fond memories and a soft spot for that. And it, it's, it's a big decision to decide to take it from me. You know, I grew up on the East Coast. Now I'm here in the Midwest and it's it's different, so it's a big decision to relocate. So I'd say give it a trial run. But by the way, you know when he uh, applied for the job as a Massachusetts guy, we had to make sure <laughs> that there was no affinity towards the New England Patriots, the Boston Red Sox, the Boston Celtics, or anywhere else. I no, no comment on that. <laughs> NFC or nothing, baby. Eric Strom, financial planning specialist at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you very much for joining us, Dave Spano. Thanks for sticking around. The other guy scooted, but he thank did. you very much. You bet, Danny. Ten fifty one, WTMJ. It's money talk again website annexwealth.com quick reminder tuesday in mequon retirement roadmap about an hour and a half it's a great discussion about uh, retirement we don't sell you anything because we don't sell anything all right retirement roadmap go to annexwealth.com slash event get professional help with your portfolio this is money talk with dave spano and mark oswald on wtmj 
Joining me, Ron Johnson, a CFP and senior financial planner at Annex Wealth Management. Hey, welcome to fall. Thank you. Thanks right. for having me. So Ron's a guy with many talents. He's kind of our go-to Social Security guy, and that's what we're going to talk about particularly, what are called early claimers. And those are people who start taking Social Security benefits at the earliest possible age, which is 62. And Ron, you can take it at 62, but it's less if you waited longer. So how does that work? Yeah, that's right. So w- when you look at your Social Security statement, they tell you how much you, you can expect to receive. That is your benefit amount at what we call your full retirement age, right? And for most of us, it's going to be age 67. If you take a benefit before that point, it's going to be less. And if you take it as early as age 62, you can expect your benefit to be about 30% less than that figure on your statement. Is that a penalty or an incentive or what is that? What it is really, since you're going to take it sooner and you're going to claim benefits for an extra five, six, seven years, in exchange for that, Social Security is going to reduce your benefit. And from an actuarial point of view, they're looking at is they're trying to hit a mark where everyone's going to take roughly the same amount out of Social Security over their lifetime. Why is it not a good idea to start taking it right at 62? The way we look at Social Security here at Annex is we look at it in the form of a break-even point. And what does that mean? If you take it at age 62, yes, your benefit's less. But you claim benefits for five, six, seven more years than, say, if you took it at age 70, right? But at age 70, your benefit's a lot more. The question is, at what point in your lifetime will you have claimed more benefits from the Social Security Trust Fund in aggregate? The way we look at it is if you start at 62 and you, and we compare that to taking it at 70, we usually see that right about your early 80s is when you've hit the break-even point. That's where if you took it at 62 and he died before, say, age 82, you won. But if you wait to age 70 and you hit your early 80s and you continue to live longer than your early 80s, you're going to start taking more from the trust fund than you would have if you took it early at age 62. And Ron Johnson, you're talking about the way that our clients would approach it. And our clients, more than likely, it's not the only thing that they have. They've got other investments. So it's probably only part of their retirement income. But it is an important part. I know that there's been lots of negative press about the Social Security Trust Fund and so forth, but the way we look at it is, first of all, your benefit is not subject to market volatility, and if you wait, it's going to guarantee to grow. And we think that benefit will be around in the future. And for most people, even people with lots of assets, it is still a good majority of their uh, monthly and annual income. So I've heard it's a really complex calculation trying to figure this out. This is what good financial planners do. Yeah. The actual math behind it is fairly complicated, but the easy way to look at it, if you wait past your full retirement age, it's going to grow at roughly 8% a year up until age 70. And if you take it before your full retirement age, it's going to be reduced a little bit each year up until you'll claim about 70% of your full retirement benefit age 62. I know full retirement age is kind of a government term, but yep. a lot of people maybe listening are like, forget it. I want to, I want to be done at 62. Are there times when it makes sense to start taking it at 62? It, it does. You know, first of all, it makes sense to claim it at age 62 if you expect to have a short life expectancy. Uh, another reason why you're going to want to claim it at 62 is because maybe you need that income. You know, maybe you, you did a pretty good job saving, but you don't have enough investment assets to fund your retirement spending goal all the way to 70 so you can wait and defer that Social Security income until age 70. Randy Winkler's been in here and he gave us a scenario one 
time where it was two different clients. One started at 62, started to take the benefit. The other, they said, wait till 70. And I guess it all depends on your, your assets, what you've got, and when you can take it. And that, again, gets into the whole financial planning thing. We can start getting into the weeds a little bit because here at Annex, if you've got some assets where you have a choice between 62 and 70, we also look at it from a tax perspective. You know, what makes more sense? And that's a very individual decision. And that's where we roll up our sleeves. We understand your tax liability today. We project it out in the future. And then we look in to see how Social Security is going to impact that and what's the most efficient way for you. And you work very closely with our tax team. You're part of that tax team, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a team of us. Uh, Andy is one of them, myself and some others that really put the whole picture together. Because when you talk about financial planning, it's not just Social Security in a vacuum. We want to put all the variables together and figure out what's the most efficient way for you to build a retirement plan for you. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Scripps Media Incorporated.